Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 322. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon. Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen. And in the never-ending effort to get Brent's act together, we're bringing you another interview. If, If you've seen, we've been not quite as regular with the show over the last couple months. Uh, You can listen to episode 321 and hear of the tales of woe of of Brent. Uh, Those of largely, those right now, knock on wood, are largely behind us. Although we did have a family friend pass away way too early from breast cancer at the age of 43, and it just breaks my heart. We were at the services last week, so I'm hoping the rest of 2016 gets a lot a lot better because the end of 2015 and the beginning of 2016 have, have not uh they've been really heartbreaking to be honest with you and 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 i'm not going to go into all the sort of details of it again you can go into 321 to listen to to part of it too but the rest of the year we deserve a good year i think anyway we're trying to catch up and i've got a tremendous interview for you today with jim c hines a good friend of my writer friend of mine, good friend period really, but a good, good writer friend of mine, Catherine Shaftstump. She's one of my classmates from Viable Paradise and a regular from the convention circuit and uh, regular kind of participant out in the writing community. You know the speculative fiction writing community. Uh, we were talking at at Icon in October about this whole podcasting thing and she expressed an interest to to interview or give a shot at an interview. So this is this is that effort and I think the results are quite spectacular. So I hope you all enjoy this interview with Jim C. Hines and uh, you know he's a luminary certainly in the field both not only as an author but also as a is a fan. Uh, you know certainly most folks will know that he won a Hugo several years ago as best fan, uh, best fan writer. So he'll have a lot to say about what's going on in the field, not only about his, about his work. Uh, as you've noticed, I'm out without Christy again this week, but I promise next episode will include both me and Christy. Uh, Christy, if you get the chance, uh, reach out to her on social media and congratulate her. We're certainly going to talk about this next time to get we're together, but she's a finalist for the Compton Cook Award. So uh, certainly make sure to reach out to uh, congratulate her. And then the other topic, I, I still want to broach the Amazon topic with her, uh, and we'll chat a little bit about that. But the other topic that she and I both been watching is the, the lawsuit uh, uh, that uh, you know, Cassandra Clare's been been sued recently for uh, copyright infringement and other under, other uh, topics. If I've gotten that correctly, I'm not 
kind of looking at completely in my notes, but I know uh, a lot of it's intellectual property uh, infringement. So she and I will be uh, certainly chatting about about that topic. In the meantime, I'm going to keep my comments uh, brief. We're going to leave them essentially at this. Uh, I hope you enjoy the interview with Jim C. Hines. And until next time, take care. This episode is brought to you by Black Dawn from Morgan Brodigan. Piracy had been picking up. Sure, the whole region was growing, but no one expected this. Colony ships, commercial liners, individuals from all walks of life. No one was exempt from the attacks. Planetary forces patrolled their local space, but the vast emptiness between systems was where the danger lay, and there was nobody out there to help, or was there? A discarded project of human engineering, Coy Lamont has no home, no friends, and now no job. With literally nothing to lose, it enters a high-stakes game that changes the course of its life. Quite unexpectedly, Coy has the means to save not only itself, but the rest of the inhabitants of the Beta region from the growing pirate threat. But Koi discovers its creator's control did not stop when it left their lab, and to conquer the pirates, it must first conquer itself. To learn more, come to the show notes, episode 322, and click on the image that you will see from Black Dawn by Morgan Brodigan. This is Catherine Shaftstump here for Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, and I'm interviewing Jim Hines, famous author. Hi, Jim. Hi, Kath. How you doing today? So far, so good. Very well, happy to know that I am a famous author. Well, you That's are kind of pretty exciting. famous. That's uh, relative. <laughs> for, for our purposes today, you are famous, okay? Works for me. Okay. So I understand you have a a new book coming out here pretty soon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I can. Uh, First week in February, it is called Revisionary. It is the fourth and final book in the Magic Ex Libris series. It started with Libriomancer. It's all about a magic-using librarian from Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about, well, Isaac's journey I, I i've been reading these books this is this is no surprise i'm sure to to you um oh, thank you well they're great books um what 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 kind of cool things happened to isaac in this book i know the last book a lot of really interesting changes occurred for isaac if you go back to the beginning isaac is young uh impulsive and he's kind of been booted out of doing field work for his little secret magic organization. Over the course of the four books, well, he still does some things that are impulsive, but he starts to learn, he starts to get more of a big picture understanding. The guy who is in charge of the big magic society is Johannes Gutenberg. Uh, Yes, that Gutenberg. (laughs) And a lot of the time, Gutenberg comes off as an asshole. Uh, by the end of the series, Isaac still pretty much thinks he's an asshole, but he's starting to understand why. He's starting to have to make harder decisions as basically things start to fall apart, secrets start to come out into the open. At one point, and you mentioned this a little bit, over the course of books two and three, Isaac flat out loses his powers, which is very traumatic. One of the things I 
try to do a lot in my writing in general is to take a look at some of the tropes and some of the assumptions that we see a lot in the genre, whether that's sword and sorcery or fairy tales or, in this case, urban fantasy. One of the things I wanted to look at is so many of these urban fantasy series, magic exists, but it's secret because humanity is just so good at keeping secrets. (laughs) So over the course of the four books, uh, in the beginning, this is a secret society. This is kind of standard urban fantasy setup. Over the course of the series, that secret breaks um, because human beings are not able to maintain that level of secrecy, especially as we continue to evolve in terms of technology, in terms of communication, in terms of everybody having a video camera on their cell phone now. So it's not just, hey, I think I saw a werewolf, but hey, let's put this on YouTube so everyone can see the werewolf. In book four, everything is out in the open. And Isaac is in a pretty high up position of trying to deal with that and manage that. And it's a mess because people are also messy. He's having to deal with politics. He's taking trips out to Washington, D.C. The very first few pages are a transcript from his hearing in front of the Joint Committee on Magical Security or something like that. Nice. And just the idea that this Uper librarian who accidentally burned down part of Mackinac Island is now testifying in front of Senate and House representatives. It's just a lot of fun. It sounds like it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. That's the first week of February, right? Correct. So Comes out on Tuesday. I don't remember the date because I suck and I don't have a calendar here. February 2nd. I remember the date because I just wrote syllabi. It will be out on February 2nd. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, now, I really loved what you said in in, uh, your answer there about breaking genre, uh, sort of genre rules, like, you know, how urban fantasy is really always secret. And you're you're absolutely right. Our technology today, I I think urban fantasists really need to think about how, how that impacts it. You've written a couple of other series where you've sort of put the tropes of those series on their ears, haven't you? A little bit, yeah. Uh, there's the Goblin books. Those were my first books out from a big publisher. And it was your typical sword and sorcery adventure quest, but told from the perspective of the Goblin who gets captured and dragged along. And he wants nothing to do with any of this nonsense. Then there was a series of four fairy tale retelling books that basically took some of these princesses from the older fairy tales and made them action heroes, um, starting with the stepsister scheme, but teaming up Sleeping Beauty, who is the ninja-type character, with Snow White, who is the witch, with Cinderella running around with her glass sword and talking to the animals, and they run around and fight witches and save princes and do all, all of those things that they didn't necessarily get to do in their original stories. And it's just something I have fun with, looking at these stories, looking at the assumptions, and poking at it to see where are the gaps, where are the things we haven't looked at, where are the assumptions we make, how can we examine this from another perspective? That sounds like an excellent way to generate material. 
It's worked for about a decade or so. Uh, <laughs> That's good. I just finished writing my first middle grade manuscript. Uh, and it's, again, doing the same kind of thing, but looking more at portal fantasies. Ah. Um, putting Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe into modern day, and then flipping it around a bit in ways that I will not reveal yet. Well, because I don't even know if it's going to sell or just disappear into my trunk. You know, if, if you get enough people excited about it, we can always start a letter-writing campaign. So this is your opportunity. I will keep that in mind, but I only sent it to the agent a couple of days ago, so let's give them a little time to do their magic. Great. Okay. That's, that's fair. Now, back when I met you at Fantasy Matters in 2005, um, you had just finished up the Goblin series and were just beginning uh, the, the Princess series. Um, you probably don't even remember me, uh, except as one of those nameless professors in a crowd, but that's what started me following your blog and reading your books. And I've always wondered, at, at the time when you were talking about beginning the Princess series, how difficult was it for you to make the shift from being a comedy writer to a serious, more serious writer? Because the Goblin books are, are incredibly funny. And, and that's not easy. Thank you. I know that well. They are. And, and uh, not only are they a real interesting examination of, of um, humanity and the, the state of goblins um, in a very deep and interesting way. Most people probably aren't getting that. But, you know, English professors, we look for that sort of stuff. I understand. Um, and, and, you you know, they're, they're great. And I'm making writing comedy is, is, of course, not easy. But then shifting from comedy to almost dramedy. I think the princess books are drama with occasional lacings of dramedy. Was that a difficult shift for you? Yes and no. Um if you read the first book, The Stepsister Scheme, and compare it to The Mermaid's Madness, which comes next, you can definitely see Stepsister has more of that goblin-style humor. That there was a transition. Um, I think there's a scene with little pixies, and they're glow-in-the-dark pee because pixies are all about sparkles. Um, Keeping it classy just, there, by the way. Uh, what was that? The P thing, keeping it classy. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, but that's there, there was definitely a transition. I was still trying to bring in some of the goblin-level humor. And I think for the most part, the humor in Stepsister works. But over the course of that book and getting into the next one, you're right. It was, okay, now let's move away from some of the silly, goofy humor and start to get a little deeper into these characters, a little deeper into the backstory. Let's see where else we can go with this. It wasn't so much that they were harder to write. It just took me some time to shift gears and to realize these books need to have a different tone. Where I want to go with this series, I can't do with the kind of nose-picking jokes I was making in the Goblin books. Fair enough. I think um, a lot of people have to appreciate your talent as a very versatile author. A lot of authors can't do what you have just completed, which is to write three incredibly different series with with totally different tones and very different styles. I mean... Um, Kudos to you, because that had to be really challenging. And, and not every author can, can write things, three things that are so radically different. 
Thank you. That's weird because as I was sitting down figuring out what do I want to pitch to my publisher next, I was looking at, okay, I want to do something different now because I feel like I keep doing fantasy. Uh, I have had Smudge the Fire Spider in two out of the three series. I, I actually pitched an idea for some humorous space opera type stuff. Right. Which right. would be another another leap and to be honest is kind of scary just i've never done science fiction and novel length before so on the one hand i'm looking at this and saying oh yay all new ways that i could potentially fail (laughs) but at the same time it keeps it interesting um it you know part of it is just me looking for things that will keep me from getting bored because I don't want to write the exact same thing over and over again. Well, and as a member of your readership, I certainly appreciate you not writing the same thing over and over again. Um, when I find an author, I will often enjoy that author until I get through about maybe four or five of the books, which are the same thing. And I look at a series stretching out in front of me, which I think is going to be the same. And I don't know, that just doesn't really work for me. So mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate an author who can who can really move and change and isn't afraid to experiment. So that's another Jim Hines, you know, compliment for the interview. Good job, Jim. You you just keep right on going. Um, I'll settle in and listen here. uh, No, it's your interview, man. I (laughs) ask you questions. So Jim, I'm going to ask you the, the typical stereotypical, almost uh, writer interview question. Um, when did you figure out that you wanted to be a writer? Was it an early thing for you? Was it a, a later thing for you? How did that happen? Which time? Oh, my. Uh, okay, that, that opens. Uh, you have to explain Initially, that. really, it would be 1995. Okay. Uh, sophomore in college, total geek, which I'm sure will be a shock to everybody. <laughs> I'd been playing D&D with some people from the dorm, and started writing this book about my D&D character because we were all unhealthily obsessed with that game um, and ended up over the course of a semester or so writing 40 or 50,000 words of bad D&D fiction, which actually got self-published a year or so back, but that's a different story. But when I got done and I had written this thing and I was deluded enough to think it was good, it was just fun. And the realization that I had spent all of this time typing and writing, you know, it, it was like pulling teeth to do a 10-page term paper, but 50,000-word book, I was doing this in my free time and waiting for the chance to get back to it and kind of decided, huh, maybe there's something here. Maybe this is the sign that I should run along and try to do this more seriously. So I then spent the next 10 years writing short stories and writing books and Mm -hmm. sending things out and getting rejected, but slowly learning how to write. Um, Because at the time, back in 1995, I might have thought that this D&D story was brilliant and wonderful and original, but I was very, very wrong. It was awful. That was when everything started for real. That was... You know, the start of 20-some years of writing and working through to where I got to today. But before that, and I hadn't really remembered this for a while, when I was probably very young teenage years, reading through, like, Star Trek novels and all of that, 
I remember sending a letter to one of these Star Trek authors saying, hey, this is so cool. Star Trek is so cool. Everything is so cool. I want to be a Star Trek author. How do I do it? To which she sent back a letter um, with an advertisement for her other books. Oh. Um, that There was sort of a form note in there saying, I cannot tell people how to be Star Trek authors. So I'm assuming I was not the only one sending her this letter. But there was at least the interest way back, you know, almost 30 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't do anything seriously with it at the time, but something was germinating. So let me just uh, have you tell us about that first novel, which is, is available, because I think people might be curious to see that. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is called Rise of the Spider Goddess. Uh, I self-published it in December of 2014. It is the original manuscript from 1995, but I annotated it with another 5,000 or so words of, basically, it's the Mystery Science Theater treatment. Uh, It's 2015 Jim talking to 1995 Jim And just saying, dude, what were you thinking? Basically trying to do two things with it. Uh, One was to just be funny. You know, Mystery Science Theater is funny. I don't claim to be that good, but I I like to think I can at least make people laugh and, you know, have some fun at my own expense. (laughs) The other piece was sort of as almost as a potential tool for writers putting it out there and highlighting all of the things I did wrong and saying, hey, look, I've made all of these mistakes so you don't have to. And you wouldn't think that this 20-year-old Dungeons & Dragons fic would be that useful, but I've actually had writers who email me afterwards saying, you know, after I read your book, I will never do this thing (laughs) because you did it so badly and then laughed at it. And it's like drilled into my brain now. So I'm sitting here going, wow, holy crap, that was useful. It makes me aware of how many times my characters nod and my characters no longer raise their eyebrows at all. Oh, God. You know, it's like, yeah. Mm. I I still occasionally let them raise eyebrows when I'm writing, but even in the middle grade book, every time it was like, okay, wait, stop. How many times (laughs) have I done this? Exactly. Exactly. Because in Spider Goddess, there's just a running tally. It's wonderful. So many characters. They're constantly running around. Everybody is like half Spock. One eyebrow permanently raised. (laughs) It's just sad. It was wonderful. It was very funny. Um, The other thing that that you mentioned in the answer uh, to that question that I asked was you said uh, you took... Uh, 10 years to work on short stories and another 20 to get to the point where you are now. That that doesn't sound like instant overnight success. It wasn't 10 and then another 20. It was a total of 20 to get right. where I am. Right, okay. I'm sorry um, and the that. first 10 was kind of learning curve, getting to the point of being able to consistently write publishable work. Those first 10 years... Uh, Most of it was short fiction, but I wrote several other novels, all of which went into the trunk, and those will not be coming back out. I already did that with Spider Goddess. I don't have to do it again. (laughs) Uh, But it's 
I, writing is like anything else. You don't sit down one day and say, hey, I want to be a carpenter and then build a house. You don't say, I want to be a surgeon and then go start cutting somebody open. Um, that's not surgeon, that's psychopath. Writing is the same way. There's this myth that you can that writers just sit down and magically the words pour out and then New York sends them lots and lots of money and yay, now you're George R. R. Martin. When in reality, even George R. R. Martin was not George R. R. Martin when he started out. There were years of practice and learning the craft, learning these skills. So yeah, it was it was probably about 10 years to the point where I could write a story and then look at it and say, yes, this is good enough to sell or no, this isn't there yet. This is what I need to do to fix it. When I did a survey uh, about five years back, I talked to more than 200 authors, all of whom had published novels with mid-sized to big publishers. The average time it took them to sell that first novel was, I think, somewhere between 10 and 11 years. Mm. It's, you know, and if you compare that to a lot of other crafts, a lot of other skills, yeah, it takes five to 10 years to learn the skills and get out there and start doing it professionally. So you must have had some time in there where, like so many authors, you wondered if you were ever going to make it. Oh, God, yes. How did you how did you keep going through those those 10 years? I mean what, what kept you going? I'm very stubborn. I honestly think that's one of the most important traits if you're going to do this. Um, there were a few successes over the course of those 10 years. Nothing consistent, but uh, about five years in, I had a story that won writers of the future and got to spend a week out in Los Angeles at this big fancy writing workshop. And it's like, oh, this is cool. This is awesome. Now I'm a real writer. And then went back and immediately started getting rejected again. But it was, it was one little blip of, hey, maybe you can do this. Then there would be another short story sale that, okay, here, here's another little blip. I'm not a complete failure. I'm, I'm only failing 95% of the time, maybe. So clinging to the successes helped. And success didn't have to be a big, huge thing. You know, flying out to L.A., wonderful. But writing a short story, taking it into my writing group and having somebody cry, that was another you know, success, another thing to cling to. Uh, because I, I wanted them to cry over that story. Uh, and the, <laughs> That's an important point to make. Right. It wasn't yeah. that I was trying to write humor and they were just, oh, God, Jim, not more goblins. Why? <laughs> uh, it was I was trying to be deep and emotional and holy crap, it worked. Look at that. I accomplished. I had an emotional impact on another human being. I am the best writer in the universe. It was it was really important to cling to those because, yeah, it gets so discouraging and so frustrating, especially in the beginning when you don't have the ability to look at your own work objectively. You can't see the flaws. You can't see why did this get rejected. So I'm looking at the stories I write and I'm looking at what's getting published and I'm not recognizing why my work is not there. And it just feels unfair and confusing and I have no idea if it's ever going to change. You know, these, when you work 
that many years at something and there's no guarantee, yeah, it gets hard. It gets very frustrating, very discouraging. There were times of I'm just going to go into my room and pout for a while or I'm going out for ice cream because, damn it, I need something or just pulling my wife aside and saying, I need to vent for a few minutes and I need somebody to remind me that that this is okay. You know, that it's not the end of the world that Realms of Fantasy rejected me again. But nevertheless. So, yeah, there, there was plenty yeah. of downtime. You you obviously are a stubborn man, though, because you kept it up <laughs> until until you got to that point, And you, you very clearly worked hard to get to that point. Um, so I think a lot of, of writers who are kind of where you are probably needed to hear that, that you know, persistence is key and stubbornness is important. <laughs> For almost every quote-unquote successful author I've talked to, yeah, right. it's right. been a huge thing is just sticking it out. And as the rejections come in, they knock you down, you get back up and you write the next story and you send it back out and you say, okay, you rejected me. Well, I'll write an even better one and let's see you reject that one. Come on. <laughs> and then they do. And you just sort of, it's like an old basic program, write, submit, go to 10, repeat. Now let's talk a little bit about your Hugo award-winning website. <laughs> you have a, a blog that is a, a very popular blog. Can you can you talk about the kinds of topics that that you write about and and uh, that kind I, of thing? Yeah, I've got a blog on the website. It's jimchines.com. Um, but I've been writing online since the late 90s. Uh, the very first blog that I put up, which back then was called an online journal, it was on a GeoCities site. It was all hand-coded HTML. I had starry background and an animated GIF of a dragon flying across the top. It, it was very late 90s. And at the time, all it was was me and a handful of other writers posting our word count and talking about what we were working on and just a way for us to keep up with each other and not feel quite so isolated. Over time, both as I developed as a writer and as the internet grew and the blogosphere became a thing, I started... A couple of things happened. Uh, one is I realized I had a lot more I wanted to talk about. I also realized I was starting to have an audience. Mm. You know, as I started to sell books and stories, people would come and actually pay attention to things I was saying, which was kind of weird. Um, but okay. So I started trying to talk about things that were important to me. And that's really been the core of the blog ever since is I write about things that I care about, things that I feel are important, things that I feel passionate about. And that might be writing about Avatar The Last Airbender because that show was awesome. I loved it. I loved the storytelling. I loved so many aspects of it. I was passionate. I wanted to geek out about it. So I went online and I wrote about it. And other people showed up and we all said, yay, we like this awesome thing. On another axis, there are things um, 
societal level, genre level conversations and conflicts that I feel very passionately about. Um, the portrayal of women in the genre has been an ongoing thing that, you know, looking back, looking at the way we portray women in older stories, older cover art, and even today, is kind of messed up. Mm. Uh, I've done blog posts talking about the way we portray rape in fiction, that it's this lazy, overused, badly used plot device that, oh, I have a female character. Well, what should we do to motivate her? Have somebody come in and rape the character. It's like this thoughtless default, and it's handled badly, and it's just really bad writing. Looking at issues of race and diversity and inclusion, um, whether it's, okay, fine, we will publish this book about your black character, but we're not going to be let them be black on the cover. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to lighten their skin because marketing or because whatever. Um, I've had people explain it to me that, oh, that's because black people don't read science fiction and fantasy, which is total crap. But people believe ignorant things sometimes. Uh, so there's there's a range. Um, on Fridays, I've started just posting roundups of links to things that make me happy. It's just more of a Friday. It's been a long week. Let's look at some cool stuff. One week, it might be kittens. The next week, it's here are some people up in Canadian hot springs who got out of the hot spring and their hair froze solid. And it looks weird. So look at those pictures. So yeah, there's a range. Some of it is passionate and serious. Some of it is silly. Some of it is just me talking about everything from stuff going on with my family, although that's somewhat filtered because some of that is not going to get talked about publicly. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been a number of posts where I've written about depression, which was a diagnosis of mine a few years back, and there's been some adjusting and learning to live with and deal with that. And it was another thing that, hey, this is important to me, it might be important to other people, I'm going to talk about it. Do you find that working on the blog comes from a different creative space than working on your novels, or do you find those pursuits to be very similar? They're, I would say it's different. A lot of the time, the blog writing almost comes easier. It's this sort of short-term, oh, I have this thing I need to get off my chest. I have this thing that's pissing me off that I need to write about. And it's it feels smaller. And that's not the right word, because some of these are big conversations, or they're part of bigger things going on across the genre. But it's more... The difference between writing a 10-minute episode of a show for TV versus this big three-part Hobbit trilogy for film. Okay. Makes sense. Oh, good, because I wasn't sure. No, I think think that analogy works. All right. Well, let's shift gears again. Um, I, I want you to talk to me about some opportunity that being an author has given you that you might not have had if you hadn't been an author? An opportunity that I've had that I wouldn't have had. Yes. Something that happened to you or something that you've gotten to do or, or some cool experiences you've had by virtue, by way of being an author. There's been a bunch actually. Yeah. Um, I, 
I got to see my goblins made into lead miniatures for <laughs> role-playing games. Um, getting uh, you, you mentioned the Hugo Award, which was pretty damn cool. Um, I think the one I'll go with is a few years back, Continuum, a convention down in Australia, invited me to be their guest of honor. Ooh. Which means... They flew me down to Australia, and I had never been there before. I got to not only enjoy a really cool convention, but to take a few extra days to look around and to see this place that I'd never been before. Uh, I got to take my daughter along with me, and we were driving around and walking around and doing the tourist things and feeding kangaroos and seeing baby penguins, and it was just an absolutely wonderful week. And it came about from the writing and from people saying, hey, we want you to come be a part of our convention. But really, there's there's been so much. I mean, so many people I've had the chance to meet, authors, fans, so many different conventions I've been able to go to. Uh, it's a pretty cool job. Very cool. Very cool. I understand recently you've made a bit of a shift in your author life, work professional life ratio. I have indeed. How's that working out for you? Late last summer, I walked into my boss's office and I said, hey, I'm going to be quitting. I'm going to be staying at home, partly for family stuff, family reasons, but also because I want to do this whole full-time writing thing. It's time. It's been 20 years. And they said, oh, well, we don't want you to go. What if we come up with like a 10-hour position where you can telecommute most of the time? And I said, I'm listening. So at this point, I am not completely gone from the day job, but I am 75% gone from the day job. And most of what I do is just get up in the morning, log on to the laptop right here, and work for a couple hours from home. Then I've got the rest of the day for writing and grocery shopping and housework and picking up the boy from the bus stop and taking the daughter to her doctor appointment and whatever else is going on that week. I am loving it. Um, it's that 10 hours a week with the day job is nice because it still gives me a little bit of structure. I'm still having to get up in the mornings because part of me is a teenager and would sleep until noon. There's a little bit of a steady paycheck also nice because writing income is anything but steady. And thanks to the Affordable Care Act, I'm still getting health benefits from those 10 hours a week, which I did not expect that to happen, but is a very nice bonus. At the same time, even with all of the other stuff I'm doing at home, I'm getting more writing done. That middle grade novel I talked to you about that I submitted earlier this week, I started writing it in November. So it was just over two months to write, rewrite, revise one more time, and send it out. Wow. Which is just amazing. Uh, and I'm loving it. I'm loving the possibilities this opens up. I can be more productive. I can continue to write for my publisher, but I can write some other things. Uh, I've talked to a couple of authors trying to get a feel for maybe I will self-publish some middle-length works in here you know, the Libriomancer books. There are going to be four books. That's the end of the series. But what if I self-publish a 20,000-word piece about what comes next? I'd buy it. There you go. 
<laughs> and how much would you pay for that exactly? Um, well, um, that's not for me to say. I, I think okay. you could set a good price, I'm sure. Yeah. But it's that kind of thing. It's those other opportunities to write more and to explore different paths that I just never used to have the time or the energy for. And I need to figure out how to balance it all. I find that now that I'm pretty much full-time writing, my brain thinks that I should always be writing. There is no such thing as a day off. There is no end of the work day. You have to be writing all of the time. And if you stop, this little brain goblin will be chasing me saying, no, you should feel bad. How dare you go out and see the Star Wars movie? That's two and a half hours that you could have been writing. You are a failure. So I'm working on that. I'm trying to get a bit more structure and a bit more of a healthy balance where I can be productive without basically killing myself. But overall, I'm loving it. I am much happier. I think I am much healthier, even with the brain goblin. Yeah, and I'm sure you'll get that guy under control. I suspect if you, you know, I will have a pretty full-time job myself. And for me, like the, the guilt of not writing whenever you have a spare moment is, is obvious. You need the spare moments. It's probably carryover. Mm-hmm. And now you have more spare moments. I think it's, you know how when you, if you buy a house, the amount of stuff you have seems to expand to fill that space. Yes. I think the day-to-day schedule is the same way. It's like now I have more space in my schedule. And so the brain starts coming up with all of the other projects you want to do. And all of a sudden, you still have more stuff you want to write than there are hours in the day. Right. Wait, how did that happen? (laughs) I have more than enough time to maintain the pace I was doing a year ago. But now I want to accomplish three times as many things. Well. Well, poop. Yeah, but you just wrote a novel in two months. So I'm optimistic for you. Yeah. Oh, me too. Yeah, um, it, it will be. You know, another piece of it is I'm waiting for contracts to come back from my publisher, so I don't have any hard and fast deadlines yet. Mm. That will give me a bit more structure. Right, of course, that makes sense. Let me ask you this question, and and you may take this question in either or one direction. Do you have a, a favorite book, either one that you've written, what's the favorite book that you've produced, um, and or that you've read by somebody else? Favorite books that I've read, um, it varies from year to year, month to month, depending on what kind of a mood I'm in. Uh, good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett is always a good one to mention there. Um, I have a tremendous amount of respect for both authors, but when they teamed up, what they produced was just amazing. I'm very, very fond of Janet Kagan's work. Nettie Okorafor, I have loved everything I've read from her. Don't ask me for just one book. There are so many good books out there. That's fair. In terms of what I've written, most of the time it's whatever my newest book is. Partly because, as a writer, I think we are constantly trying to do better. You know, each time when you sit down and write a book... You don't want to produce the same thing you did last time. You want to write something even better and maybe more ambitious. And and so when you get all done, hopefully what you have produced is now your best book until the next one you do. That makes sense. 
oh good I thought it was just completely Weasley but no I think everybody everybody kind of feels that way even I feel that way when I'm working on books so it's probably one of those author you know truisms like a bunch of authors get together and they say the me too things you know like I don't feel like I mean, I'm a real writer there, me too you know there, there are pieces of different books that I look at and it's like I'm really proud of this or I love the way that happened um you know, and I can point to things like in in Unbound, in the third Libriomancer book, I wrote about Isaac struggling with depression mm-hmm. as a result of losing his magic and everything else that had gone wrong. That meant a lot to me. And I was really happy with how it turned out and some of the response I'd gotten. The middle grade one that I just sent out, I actually spent the last couple of weeks uh, as I was rewriting, I was also reading chapters to my son each night. Now, my son is autistic. One of the characters in the book is not really based on him, uh, but I wanted to write about a nonverbal autistic character. And when we got all done, I asked my son, you know, what did you think? What characters did you like? And he named uh, one of the goblins, which was no surprise. And then he named the autistic character, Mac. Say, really? Why why did you like that character? And he kind of said, I don't know. I guess it seemed like he was like me. And that I mean that was just okay, thank you. Even if this book never gets published, I feel good about it now. Because this character and you thought he was like you and he's out there helping to be a hero and he is one of the three characters that not exactly save the world, but save a world. Let's put it that way. I don't know how we can follow that up. That was pretty good. <laughs> that was pretty moving. Um, all right. Well, we're almost we're almost finished. Jim, where are okay. people going to be able to uh, find you this year if they want to meet you or or have a book signed? Okay. The easiest way is to go to jimchines.com ah. and click on schedule. Very good. What I am remembering, I will be at Icon in Iowa. Woo-hoo! I am their Toastmaster each year. Lots of fun people down there, as you may know. I will be going down to Texas. I believe it's called FenCon. Mm. I will be one of the guests of honor at Millenicon in Ohio. There will probably be other things. I'm just not remembering them yet, or I haven't set them up yet. All right. Well, we'll visit your website and see how things develop. Is there any last thing you'd like to say to the folks listening to the interview? Um, Kind of a wide open pick here, but is there anything, any words of wisdom? Uh, Wisdom was kind of my dumb stat, so I got nothing for you. (laughs) Uh, I would just say thanks for having me on and thank you to everybody for listening. And thank you uh, for writing uh, such great books. Again, the uh, last of the Libriomancer books, Revisionary, coming out here on February 2nd. Um, I've already got my copy reserved at the bookstore, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>